Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope you'll excuse me if I kind of sit here. I had double knee replacement surgery a few months back, and I'm doing well, but I'm still not at 100%. So if you won't mind bearing with me today so I don't start crying up here or something like that. When Albie contacted me about preaching on uh, today, I noticed it was Mother's Day, and I asked him, well, do I have to do like a Mother's Day theme or what? And he said, no, just keep on preaching through the book of Ephesians, which I love to do because I love making Scripture to kind of come alive for people. And going through the book of the Bible, it forces you to uh, look at issues that you might otherwise avoid because they're difficult and you might skip over them. I love that challenge. I want to let you know I do a weekly podcast where I continue to do that with Scripture, so I'm making a shameless uh, you know, plug for my podcast today. It's called Gospel Wabi Sabi, and you can find it on Apple or Spotify if you want to listen in. So even though I'm not doing a Mother's Day message, I do want to tell you a story about my mom. Uh, her name was Chorus, like Doris, but with a C. Uh, her maiden name was Larson. She was from a family of uh, Danish immigrants. Her father had a dairy farm uh, in southern Wisconsin near a little town called El- Elkhorn, and she was the oldest of eight children. So we lived in Milwaukee, about 45 minutes away, and so growing up, we would often spend weekends or holidays at the family farm, and we'd drive on these two-lane, narrow, uh, blacktop roads, much like the roads around here in Keene, except southern Wisconsin is all these slow, rolling hills, and so it's a little bit like this. And as kids, we love that because you get to go up and down and stuff like that. Well, on one trip home, I was about five years old. My older brother and sister were sleeping in the back seat. Uh, I was, my dad was driving. I was on my mom's lap asleep. And you have to remember, uh, this was a long time ago. There weren't seat belts in cars. There weren't even airbags, okay? This was a time when there weren't even any laws about child safety seats or anything like that. So I was just asleep on my mom's lap in the passenger side. And as we went over a little bit of a hill, we were hit head on by a drunk driver who had drifted into our lane. Now, I don't have any memory of the accident itself. All I can remember is being in the hospital and the terror I felt when I saw myself literally covered with blood from head to toe. And what I didn't realize until later was it wasn't my blood. It was my mother's blood. In that nanosecond before the crash, when, you know, time seemingly slips into slow motion, my mom just hugged me closer to her chest curled herself around my smaller body so that it was her body that slammed against the dashboard and her head that shattered the windshield. She took the impact of that collision for me. And today, the memory of being covered with my mother's blood is not a traumatic one for me. In fact, it's a powerful reminder of the intensity of her love for me. And in a similar but infinitely more significant way, the blood of Christ is a powerful reminder of the intensity of Jesus' love for each one of us. He curled himself around us, took the impact of our sins, of yours and mine, when he shed his blood on the cross. And that's why the blood of Christ is so important to the Christian faith. I mean, last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. Well, what is that? It's a recreation of his body broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. 
Jesus instructed his disciples to remember his blood in that way because it's a big deal. Blood is life. Blood is the strongest symbol God could use to communicate the the power of his love for each one of us. Blood is the most precious thing Jesus could give. And that's why later in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, Remember that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So the lamb of or the blood of God, the blood of Christ is no small thing. And in our passage today that, that Justin just read, when the Apostle Paul invokes the blood of Christ in, in verse 13, it's no small thing. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, meaning all the believers in the city of Ephesus, you who are once far away have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says the blood of Christ is actually going to be the basis for the important thing he's about to address, something that threatened to destroy the early church from the inside out. Yes, there were external pressures, there was persecution, but you know, those things just tend to push Christians together and make them stronger. The greatest threats to the health of any church always come from within, never from what's going on outside in society, always from within. The greatest dangers come that way, and the New Testament kind of lists a number of those dangers, the first one being probably false teaching, the second one being power-hungry people, but the third one, and this might surprise you, was racial and ethnic prejudice. And it's that third one that Paul is actually addressing and confronting head-on in this morning's passage. Racial and ethnic prejudice was eating away at the inside of the early church like a cancer. Now, let me just assume that there are people here today for the first time, or maybe you've missed some of the, uh, the sections that have been gone on before in this message series. So let me give you just a little bit of background. It's important to remember that reading any of the letters in the New Testament... It's always like listening in on one side of a phone conversation or maybe seeing only one side of a text story. What you're reading, what you're reading is Paul's response to issues or questions or problems that the believers in Ephesus were having. And so he writes back to give his spiritual advice. He's like a spiritual Dr. Phil to give God's solution to the problems that they're having. So Ephesus was the city located in what's the modern day country of Turkey. And it was a mixed bag of people from different races and cultures because it was on a main trade route. And that mix of cultures and races caused tension. And that caused tension in the church as well. And Paul is bold enough to suggest that the solution for this conflict was going to be found in the blood of Christ. That's how peace will come to this ancient church through Christ and his shed blood. So there were two main factions in the ancient church. There were followers of Christ who were Jewish, and then there were the non-Jewish believers in Jesus who were called Gentiles. People from both groups had given their lives to Christ and were now together in the same church. But old prejudices and ill feelings between those two groups were percolating in the church. Let me try to explain it this way. If you ever try to buy a house, one important thing you have to remember is once you sign those documents and close the sale... That house and everything in it is yours, including all the problems or defects that the house may have. If there's water in the basement, now it's your water. If it's mold behind the drywall, now it's your mold. The sale of the house doesn't magically fix any of those old problems. The new owner takes responsibility for that. 
And that's the way it is when a person becomes a Christian. When you surrender your heart to Christ as Lord and Savior, you transfer the deed of ownership to him. You now belong to him. And one of the ways the Bible tries to explain this thing called salvation is that it says God purchases you, but God buys you. It's the word redeem. It's a financial word. It means to to buy back. Remember the passage I read earlier from 1 Peter, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That was the purchase price for your salvation, for your sins and mine. And so the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now Paul describes this in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 this way, he says, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not from yourselves, it's the gift from God, not by works so no one can boast. So if you are the house, God bought you knowing that you are far from perfect and in need of some serious renovation. There are closets of attitude that need to be fumigated, maybe cracks in your moral foundation that need repair. Some issues may just need a fresh coat of paint, but other areas of your life may need to be torn down to the studs. And this process of God making repairs in your life is called discipleship. The lifelong process of God working in you to make you into the kind of person he really wants you to be. The Holy Spirit is sort of like the contractor, comes in to do the work, and sometimes with a fine paintbrush, sometimes with a sledgehammer. So just because you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, magically, all your problems disappear, you're instantly perfect. No, no, far from it. All the problems we have before we become Christians, we'll have them the day after those too. If you were a gossip before coming to Christ, you may still be a gossip afterwards, and God is going to work on that in your life. If you struggled with guilt or anxiety or sexual issues before becoming a Christian, those things don't disappear. The main difference now is you have a new owner. There are times when God does instantly heal. Heal of an addiction or heal some long-standing wound or some deep struggle. God does sometimes do that, but for the most part, what I see is that Christ works in our lives day by day, kind of one room at a time to begin to change us from the inside out. And it takes time. That's why we should all have on our cars the bumper sticker that reads, you know, be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. So go back to all those brand new Christians gathered together in this little Christian community in the town of Ephesus. They're new to Christ, and they bring all their problems with them, all the broken places in their lives, all their ungodly beliefs, all the things that they learn from the world. They bring all that into the church. And so all these imperfect people come together, there's going to be problems, no no doubt about it. And the first problem Paul wants to address in this letter to the Ephesians is this thing that has the potential to wreck the church before it even gets off the ground, ethnic prejudice. Now, it's hard for us to understand the intense antagonism and prejudice that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. To do that, we kind of have to go back to actually the root of all of this trouble, in the fact that we are all sinful. One of the main consequences of sin is it creates alienation. The story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 shows us the experience. This, they, they experience alienation in at least two ways. First, Adam and Eve were alienated from God. Their once intimate relationship with their creator, it evaporated, it shattered because of their sin. And as a consequence, they felt shame and, and fear drove them to actually try to hide from God. They were alone and vulnerable, powerless. 
And so this vertical relationship with God got broken. But the second thing that happened was between Adam and Eve, they became alienated from each other. Adam and Eve had this perfect marriage of one man and one woman, and all of a sudden that union was shattered. Out of fear, they actually turn on each other. If you go back and read the passage, they start to eagerly point to each other and say, no, that, that person's to blame, not me. Basically, they throw each other under the bus before God. Their horizontal relationship gets broken. Alienated from God, alienated from each other. Every problem we face in society is simply an outworking of that reality. We are alienated from God, and therefore we experience the same kind of stress with other people. We act out of a sense of fear, of loneliness. We're trying to protect ourselves because we're not connected to God the way we should be. And in trying to protect ourselves, don't we often hurt others? That's where racial prejudice comes in. In order to protect ourselves, it's it's in human nature to look down on some other group that's different than us. Cubans don't like Mexicans. Serbs don't like Croats. Armenians don't like Turks. People from Swansea just don't like those people from Troy. I mean, right? (laughs) In the Old Testament, God began to reveal his plan to change all this, to replace alienation with a big word, reconciliation. That means to heal our relationships with him first and then straighten out what we do with other people. And he chose the people of Israel to be the vehicle or the vessel to, to make this salvation happen. That's why Israel was called God's chosen people. Not that they were anything special, but they were chosen for a special task. Through receiving the law of Moses and the prophets, they were to provide a lineage for the coming Messiah. And so Israel was supposed to be part of God's message to the whole world. Isaiah says it in chapter 42. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people and as a light unto the nations. That was Israel's job, to be a light to the nations. But what happened was they took these privileges that they had from God and sort of saw saw it as a sign that they were superior to other people. They took the law of Moses, used it to wall themselves off from other people. And as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus confronting this all the time with the religious leaders because they'd settled into this feeling of superior to the people and the Gentiles around them. They saw the law of Moses as a mark of their own righteousness and kind of gave them the ability to dismiss anybody who was outside their borders. Friends, no Iron Curtain, no Berlin Wall, no racial prejudice, no apartheid of today is more absolute than the division between Jew and Gentile in the ancient world. The animosity was actually physically built into the temple. There was a literal stone wall in the Jerusalem temple which separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jewish worshipers. Archaeologists have excavated that wall, and they discovered a sign written in both Latin and Greek to keep the Gentiles out. Literally, the sign says, do not proceed any further for fear of death. And the archaeologists actually found a pile of baseball-sized rocks nearby in case some Gentile didn't get the memo. Paul himself had narrowly escaped death two or three years earlier, because there was a false rumor that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. The tension between Jews and Gentiles was very real. But even within the circle of Jewish people, there was ethnic tension. On the day of Pentecost, you remember that great day, the apostles publicly proclaimed the gospel. Jews who had come to Jerusalem from all over the world. Acts chapter 2 lists more than, uh, no more than 15 dis- 
distinct ethnic groups of Jews who heard the message of Jesus for the very first time. Egyptians, Libyans, Romans, Arabs, and 11 more. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gave the apostles a vision of this kingdom of God where everyone, no matter what skin color or language, had the same access to the Savior. God gave the same multi-ethnic vision to the Apostle John and his vision of heaven, of Christ triumphant and the worship there. In Revelation 7, it says, After this, John says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So how would you apply the scripture to today? How are we doing as a church in America in, the, in overcoming racial and ethnic prejudice in the church? The troubling fact is that the most segregated place in the country is the average Christian church on a Sunday morning. Research by sociologists at Duke University and the Pew Research Center point out there are about 300,000 religious communities, congregations, temples in the United States. Only about 7.5 of them would qualify as actually being multi-ethnic, which means that no more than 80% or that the congregation has no more than 80% of one racial group. And if you look at just Christian congregations, that number falls to below 3%. In other words, it is normal for churches in America to be all white, all black, all Asian, all Latino. And Christians of all colors actually seem to be okay with this without embarrassment. In most larger urban areas, Christians seem to be okay with driving down the street saying that's the black church, that's the Korean church, that's the Hispanic church. We seem to be comfortable even though that goes against the multicultural vision that God lays out in scripture for his church. Paul tells us that Jesus died to tear that wall down. Why have we built it up again? Paul sums it up in verse 15. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. Christ's purpose to create this one new humanity which reflected God's grace. Where people focus not on the things that make them different, but on the thing that unites, which is Jesus Christ himself. And in this, the church should actually lead the way in society, not be bringing up the rear. Because this is not a liberal issue. It's not a conservative issue. It's a kingdom issue. It's a biblical issue. Sure, it gets politicized. It gets co-opted by people all the time for money, power, recognition, whatever. But the misuses that we see should not dissuade us from zealously pursuing the vision that God gives us in Scripture. So here are two quick takeaways. First, look inside your own heart and really honestly examine where you might be harboring feelings of prejudice uh, against another group. In the book of James, it says God's word is supposed to be like a mirror. We look into it, we see ourselves. So let this passage be a mirror to you. What's your history? What's your experience with people of different races or backgrounds or cultures? Do you ever fall into the thinking of us and them? Take an honest look in your own heart and just kind of be serious about the subtle or not so subtle prejudices that you might have. I have them. I know I do. We all do. 
but be honest with yourself about what makes you feel uncomfortable or awkward when you're with people who might be different from you. Just be honest with yourself about yourself. Second, be willing to just walk across the room. And what I mean by that is be willing to be the first person to offer a hand of friendship, to express an openness, to listen, to learn from the experiences of people who are different from you. Because distance demonizes. Let me say that again. Distance demonizes. As long as people are apart, it's so easy to label and categorize and say they do this and they do that. But it's when you close the distance, you walk across the room, that all of a sudden you see another brother in Christ, another sister in Christ, another child of our same father. Look for what you have in common. Rally around the Lord Jesus, whose blood makes it all possible. Be willing to just walk across the room. Now, the early church had to confront racial racial prejudice because it was an evil that went against the kingdom vision of Christ. It was an impediment to their spread of the gospel. We have to confront it for the exact same reasons. If we're ever to fulfill Christ's desire for his body, the church should be better than the world. So we have to at least acknowledge that the problem of racial and ethnic prejudice, it's real and it still exists in our country, in our culture, and in our churches. And it damages our witness to the world when we let that happen. Christ has redeemed you with his blood. You belong to him. Maybe it's time for some renovation of the heart. Let me invite the team back up as I pray. Lord, this is a hard message, but that's why your word is so powerful. It forces us to look at issues that maybe we'd just rather skip over. Lord, I know I've had to take a long, hard look into my heart about my prejudices and things. I don't even know where they come from sometimes, but all of a sudden an attitude, an idea will pop into my head, and I know it's not right. So as we are under construction, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to make us into the new people you want us to be. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just want to also say my mom survived the accident. She had a lot of reconstructive surgery. Nobody else was hurt. Of course, a drunk driver walked away without a scratch. But she was doing fine, lived for a long time. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.